Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Good morning, people of Hope Chapel. I hope you are all well. Uh, Welcome. I'd like to welcome those who might be visiting. You just clicked on a link that a friend or a family member provided. Um, And I also want to uh, welcome those who are are listening by by phone and welcome um, people who are listening to the Spanish translation um, on one of the other sites. Um, God bless you guys. Good morning. We have had a series of heavy weeks um, continuing this last week, uh, heavy on many people's hearts um, due to to the death of of George Floyd, um, and uh, I want to just lead us in prayer for uh, both uh, his killing as well as uh, all of the civil unrest that has um, arisen from it. So if you would just bow your heads with me and, and we'll pray together. Almighty God and Father, we praise you right now as the creator and sustainer of everything. We lift high the name of the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we may know salvation and reconciliation. We come to you today after a profoundly difficult and disheartening week in which a young man, George Floyd, was unjustly killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. We pray, Father, for Floyd's family, for his friends, for the daughter he left behind, for the church he was a part of, and for his entire community. Bring them now the peace that surpasses all understanding, increase their hope, and bend their hearts to you, the God of all comfort. We pray for the individuals involved in his death, that they would meet justice, but that you might also use this to move their hearts to mourning and repentance. I pray that you will grant other law enforcement officials who see these videos, recognize the sinful and inhuman nature of the act, and desire to righteously live out their calling, that you would empower them and protect them. We pray for those members of our church and every church and within our nation who see the death of George Floyd, and it evokes in them feelings of fear, insecurity, trauma, and anger. That you would also be their God of all comfort. That they, will, that they would be able to seek consolation and care in their churches and in their communities. We pray for the present civil unrest, even in the midst of this global pandemic, that you would protect everyone involved, that you would bring both justice and peace to our society right now, as you are the God of peace and the God of justice and the only one through whom either of these ideals can be brought about fully. I pray that you might use your church, even now, as a humble agent of God-centered living and a witness to the one who was killed in our place so that we might have life. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. With that, we're going to transition to our continued study of 1 Corinthians. I want to encourage you to pray uh, like like the way I just prayed this week. Um, And now we're going to devote our time uh, to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Uh, So please open your Bibles and, and we'll read together. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Further must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that in the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It's helpful just for a moment to remember the background of the church at Corinth. It was a church that was comprised of people from a variety of different backgrounds. Paul goes into Corinth and he preaches the gospel and people come to faith from all different factions of life, all different segments of society from different religious backgrounds. And now they're all together in one church. And in this church, Paul is preaching the gospel and they are continuing with the ordinances and then eventually, Paul leaves. He goes to continue his missionary journey. He hears that things have gone sideways while he was gone. He's received reports. He's received letters. And now what he's doing is writing to answer some of their questions and then also bring up some of the reports that he's heard about the Corinthian church. And we write at the subject of communion. This is Paul's longest and most thorough discussion of communion, but he has mentioned it once before. If we, if we turn back to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we read, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord Jesus gave his church two ordinances, and we call them ordinances because they are ordained by Jesus. The first one is baptism. And the second one is communion. And both of these ordinances have been like this immense subject of contention in the church. For years and years and years, people fought over these things. People died over these things. People killed over these things. 
And in the case of communion, it really came down to, are the, the body and blood of Christ literally present in the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, or are they symbolically present and meant to convey the truth of the gospel in the presence of Jesus? Now, you know that at our church, we believe they are meant to convey the truth of Jesus. They are symbolic. They are not literally the body and the blood of Christ. We believe this for a number of reasons, but perhaps it's just easiest to say that it's most natural to take it that way when we read this text. When Jesus says, this is my body for you, he does not mean that any more literally than he does, I am the door. So, that's what we believe. However, people have fought brutally over these issues as, as recently as a few hundred years ago. So we might say that in the past, people and their discussion of communion, it was marked by brutality and violence. But today, I think that our views of communion are marked by flippancy or superficiality. Communion was, was commanded to us by our Lord. And I hope as we work through this passage, you'll see that it is a powerful reminder of what it is that, that Jesus accomplished at the cross and the sure and certain hope we have of his return, that communion is a means of grace. And what I mean by that is not that it gives us more righteousness. Instead, it enables us to live continually transformed lives because it orients our hearts and our minds to what it is that Jesus has done. Paul believes communion is important. He believes it is valuable. He believes it is essential for the life of the church. And the problem was in Corinth, it wasn't any of these things. So Paul begins by rebuking the church at Corinth. We're going to see kind of his argument in this section laid out in three movements. Paul is going to rebuke them for distorting the supper. He's going to remind them to remember their Lord. And he's going to respond to them by calling them to examine their hearts. So let's first begin with Paul's rebuke. Begin with me in verse 17 again. We'll read together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul comes out the gate with strong words here. And it's just helpful to compare this. Like when we look at other places where Paul is addressing issues in the church at Corinth, he usually incorporates into his rebuke elements of encouragement as well. But in this case, Paul says, I have nothing to commend to you about the way that you are approaching the Lord's table. The way you are taking the Lord's Supper, the way that you are exercising communion together. He's saying, you guys have failed categorically and fundamentally here. He offers no encouragement. In fact, he says, when you are gathering together to do church and to do communion, you are not making things better. You are making things worse. You're dishonoring God. You're shaming others. You're making a mockery of the gospel. You are not even doing the thing that you think you're doing. It's like um, this analogy of, of uh, firemen showing up to a fire and, and they've got the red hats and they've got the Dalmatian and the truck and they've got their uniforms and their coats. And I don't know a ton about firemen, but just imagine they have all the right things. And, 
and they show up and they've got the hose and they pull the lever. I don't know if there's a lever, but let's pretend there. They pull a lever and instead of water coming out, uh, you know, lighter fluid comes out. The idea is, even though they're functioning in an official capacity, even though they're dressed the right way, they have a lot of the right tools, they've got all the things that we associate with being firemen, they are making the situation worse and not better. Paul is saying, you are not just neutrally practicing a church-like thing. What you are doing is not advancing the gospel. It's making it less appealing. It's communicating it less clearly. In fact, it's communicating the opposite. It's not the gospel. It's the anti-gospel. It's not the church. It's the anti-church. These are really strong words. They would have hit the Corinthians really hard. He says that there are factions among you. In fact, there must be factions. Because like when you're sorting through money to find out whether or not it's real money or not, if you work at a bank or whatever, some of it's real, some of it's not real, and you need to sort that out. Paul's saying these these factions and these divisions will bring to the surface those who do not actually trust in Jesus, those who have actually not bowed down to Jesus as king, those who have actually not seen the cross for what it is and put their hope and made Jesus their greatest treasure. The point is, Paul is saying, even in this division, God is still working to protect and to preserve and to purify his church. God takes his church seriously. And in these divisions, authenticity, genuine belief in the gospel will eventually be made clear. The words he uses for division, they're, they're these intense words that he uses, uh, the Greek word schemata and heresis, he uses these words that we might translate as um, schismatic or, or, or heretical. Not a surface, superficial problem with how they're doing communion. Not a general, uh, not big deal thing. Not a small issue, but a, a fundamental issue that drives down to the basic belief of the church that drives down to the very, very thing that makes the church what it is, basic views about Jesus and the cross and salvation. Not a flippant issue, a gospel issue. Paul is saying the way that you are approaching the Lord's table, the way that you're taking communion, is an enormous red flag for whether or not you are actually a group of believers. It's a serious accusation. And for us to understand, I think, well what's happening here, we got to get into like the background of the sort of socioeconomic or sociocultural situation at Corinth. To, to begin with, as I said earlier, there are people who convert into Christianity from all different segments of life. And particularly important to that situation in Corinth was their socioeconomic status, how much money that they had. So people would have converted to Christianity from extreme wealth in Corinth people who no longer needed to work, people who could live off of income that was coming in, whether or not they were actually going into work every day. And those people had the most money and they also had the most um, disposable time. And then after that, you have people who work very hard and continue to work hard. So they have less disposable time. They don't have as much free time as the, the people in the category above them economically, but they still have a lot of money. Then you have people maybe who were in sort of like the middle class, people who had some money and, and, and some, some free time. And then you had people who were, who were in the category of freedmen, those who had formerly been slaves but had purchased their own freedom and had some money and some free time. And then you have people who are still enslaved, whose time is not their own, and have the least money out of anyone in any of the groups that I just mentioned. And see, in that, in that society, um, 
you had rich people who would oppress the poor and they would impose on the poor or they would provoke the poor by saying how rich they were. Today, we think of equality as a fundamental issue. Every human being has dignity. But that's like not a thing that was as common in the first century. If you had an advantage, if you were wealthy or successful or powerful, you would make it known that you were wealthy or successful or powerful. You'd have statues raised in your honor. You would bring honor to your name and the name of your family. Basic human dignity and equality, that, that's, that's the result of, of Christian teaching. Actually, it was a new way of thinking about people in the first century. So that's the first thing. You have these distinctions in a socioeconomic sense. The other thing that's helpful to understand is the nature of feasts, the nature of social meals at the time of Paul's writing. But what happened is these socioeconomic classes, these different people, as they entered into a social meal together, would then import into that social meal their different advantages. So the wealthiest people with the most free time would arrive earliest, and they'd have the largest dining room where they would recline together and eat the best food and drink the best wine. And then as you progress down the ladder, people are grouped together in larger numbers. They're sitting or they're standing. They're not reclining. And they have the worst food and the worst wine. We can actually see examples of this. If we go to um, Pliny the Younger, a writer around the time of Paul, he describes a banquet he went to. Some very elegant dishes were served up to himself and a few more of the company, while those which were placed before the rest were cheap and paltry. He goes on. He had apportioned in small flagons three different sorts of wine, but you are not to suppose it was that the guests might take their choice. On the contrary, that they might not choose at all. One was for himself and me, the next for his friends of a lower order, for you must know he measures out his friendship according to the degrees of quality, and the third for his own freedmen and mine. See, what happens is, Social meals, these large feast gatherings, were opportunities to reinforce and to emphasize the advantages that you had in the outside world. You brought your success, you brought your money, you brought your influence, and you brought your power into these parties. And then these parties reflected the various levels of power and influence that different groups had in society. And that was considered by people who were outside the church at the time, not a bad thing, but a good thing. So then here's what's happened. What the vast majority of New Testament scholars and preachers have understood this passage to be referring to. What happened is these ideas of distinctions and advantages being displayed in social gatherings and in social feasts were then imported into Christian gatherings. And you'd have people that would get there earlier and start eating earlier because often Christians would share a meal before communion at the time. And then the meal will be distributed with lower and lower quality being given to people of lower and lower status. And then when it came time for communion, the advantages that people had, these distinctions that were laid out, were then imported into the communion process. Some were getting drunk, some were going hungry. Paul says those who had nothing were being humiliated. What had happened was, the way they engaged with the world had shaped the way that they take communion. What should happen is the way that they take communion should shape the way they engage with the world. Most of us probably have been on a plane at least one point in our life. And, uh, I, you know, if I fly, I fly coach, right? I walk through first class and I see the nice drinks that they have and 
the bigger TVs and the more legroom and the blankets and the face masks. And I walk past them down coach and get like a, a middle seat halfway down. And it doesn't smell great in that area because I'm a little close to the bathroom and there's no TV screen. And I don't have any drinks or any snacks. And, and it's like, you know, cramped compared to the first class. And, and we can see a division of cost there. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that people who have the money to fly first class should never under any circumstances not fly first class. He's saying, you want a big meal? Eat it at home. He's saying whatever distinction though enables some people to fly first class and some people to fly coach, that distinction, the advantage and disadvantage should not be imported to the practice of communion because it undermines what communion is communicating to the body of believers. Imagine we gathered together for church and we took any distinction, how much money someone makes, how, how intelligent or what level of education they have, how much influence they have in the world. And we took the top group in any of those categories and gave them a really nice communion and then gave everyone else sort of the second order coach communion. Certainly we would see that and think that's absolutely ridiculous. That certainly can't be reflecting what, what Jesus was intending to institute as the Lord's table. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying the way you're doing communion, it does not emphasize the power of the gospel. It undermines the power of the gospel. What you think you're doing, you are not doing. At Corinth, the church was not reflecting the truth of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, because the way that they were doing communion was backwards. They had allowed the world to shape the ordinance. They had allowed the world to shape the way they took communion. They did not allow communion to transform them such that it would shape the way that they engage with the world. Paul's saying, listen, you want to have a nice meal? Go do that on your own time. When you come to church, you do it the way that Jesus commanded that you do it. And then what he does is he takes them back to that first night. We can begin here. Paul's reminder, remembering our Lord, Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Then Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul takes them back to the basics. He takes them back to that night. He invites them back in history to that time when Jesus is with his disciples and they're instituting the Lord's Supper for the first time. He says, I'm going to show you what this initially was, what he's doing is he's beginning to cure what we've called in the past gospel amnesia. The people in the church, they had forgotten the power of the gospel. They had forgotten what the cross meant. Communion is meant to point us to that. So Paul says, here it is. And, and communion, it's meant to remind us of at least three things. The first is this. We're to be reminded that the cross, the work on the cross saves us. The work on the cross saves us. Jesus takes bread. And he says, this bread, which is for you, he does not just mean for you to eat. 
He's referring to his body, which is given up for the sake of those who would call on his name. We can go to other places in Paul to help us understand this a little bit better, but, but we might go to Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but what? Gave him up for us all. As Jesus was describing the bread to his disciples, as he was communicating to them the significance of the bread, as he talks about himself being being given up, it is very likely the disciples who are acquainted with and versed to some degree or another with the Old Testament would think of the suffering servant in Isaiah. We can read this in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for their transgressors. Jesus' body is given up for the sins of mankind, for the sins of humankind. Just the image of bread is meant to evoke in our minds the idea of Jesus as a sacrifice for us, one who is given up for us. And then the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And again, if the disciples or those of the church in Corinth are familiar with the Old Testament, they would certainly think of this passage by, uh, that, we, that appears um, in the book of Jeremiah. We read, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Here's what it is. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and and teach his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. As Jesus talks about the bread, as he talks about the cup, we get these ideas of him being given up for us. We get the idea of from the greatest to the least knowing the Lord. And if that weren't enough, if these two elements by themselves weren't enough, this is all happening in the context of the Passover. Jesus is having a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples, the last one he's going to have before he's crucified. We know the story of Passover. If you don't, I'll tell it to you. The story of Passover is this, the the Israelites have been under the oppression of the Egyptians for 400 years and God had stretched his hand out to deliver them in a mighty fashion. And a series of plagues have been leveled against the Egyptians. And the last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. But Moses and his people are given a way to escape the consequences of that plague. They're told, if you want your firstborn to live, you amongst the Israelites, what you do is you take a lamb You sacrifice the lamb, you take the blood, and you paint it on the lintels and the doorposts of your home. And upon seeing the blood, the angel of death will pass over your household, pass over. And if you're reading from Isaiah and you're reading from Jeremiah and you're thinking about Jesus as a vicarious sacrifice in our place and you're thinking about a new covenant, you're thinking about the forgiveness of sin, and then you begin to think about Passover as well, you understand that what Jesus is saying to them is, I am the true and the greater lamb who will take away the sins of the world. 
We're to be reminded when we take these elements that seem so simple and everyday to us, that they're to communicate to us the power of Jesus to save, that the cross, the work on the cross, it saves us. The second thing, we are to remember that the cross, it unites us. This follows from the first. There's no advantage. There's no level of success or, 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 or money or, or health or wellness or physical fitness or intelligence or how high I can jump or whatever that I can bring to the cross that will give me an advantage. You have heard people say that, that the, the ground at the level of the cross is flat. It's the work of Jesus that saves us. Nothing that I could bring to the table could give me an advantage. Nothing. Whatever advantage I might have outside in the world will not help me in terms of reconciliation with God, in terms of being justified in the name of Jesus, in terms of receiving salvation and having a true and future hope. None of it will help me. And what that does is it reminds us that all of us, regardless of what advantage we have on the outside, on the inside, in terms of salvation, are equal and united around the cross. We are to remember that the cross unites us. The Corinthians had gotten it backwards. Instead of taking the truth that we are all in need of Jesus in the same way out into the world, they had taken distinction and advantages they had in the world and brought them into the communion table. This was a travesty because it undermines the power and the message of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we need to remember that the cross preserves us. Paul adds after he describes the first communion night with the Lord, he says that as long as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim Christ until he returns. We're living in this like in-between time, and we feel it now in different ways more than ever. It really does feel like the world is falling apart. And I know all of us have different opinions on all of it, but we could at least say this, things are not okay right now. We believe in the finished work of Jesus and we believe that he's returning, but in this middle, we can only say, uh, come Lord Jesus. And communion reminds us that even in the middle of these whirlwind events, these world-changing events, a global pandemic, civil, civil un- unrest, um, economic recession, whatever it is, in, in the end, we see that God wins. And the Lord takes his bride. Communion doesn't just look back. It looks forward to another meal that will happen at the end. We can go go to Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb. We read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of god in communion we're reminded that even though it does not feel like it's okay right now We can be sure that it will be. Although we don't have peace right now, we know that we will one day. Although we don't have justice right now, we will one day. We can rest in the completed work of Jesus at the cross 
Understand that not everything is resolved now, but we can trust in the goodness of the Lord that one day it will be. And when we hold those elements in our hands, we can be reminded of these sweet truths. Right now, I'm working from home, as many of you are. And I work in my garage on my computer, and I've got a two-year-old, I've got a bunch of kids, but I've got a two-year-old daughter who really doesn't understand why I'm just like not in the house playing with her. She doesn't get it. And I can hear her sometimes like knocking on the door or trying to turn the handle, which she can't do yet. And, uh, and I, I have to continue to work. And sometimes I can come in and say hi to them, but, but I got stuff I need to do. And what happens is uh, there's a door, right, that goes between our garage and our house. And it makes this pretty distinct sound when I open it. And I know every time I open it, I'm going to hear my daughter somewhere in the house scream like, Dad, I'm going to hear her footsteps run into the door. Because she has come to associate the sound of that door opening with my presence. So it brings her joy when she hears it, even if she hasn't seen me yet, even if I'm not holding her yet, even if she hasn't heard my voice. She knows the sound means I'm present. Communion works like that. It works like that when we can't see the full big picture. It works like that when we're struggling in life. It works like that when we fail to hope in the certain and sure future we have in the name of Jesus. It it reminds us of what Jesus has done, what he's doing now, and that he is coming back. We can experience these sweet joys as we rest in the cross and we hope in Jesus' return. So Paul has rebuked the Corinthians because of the way that they've done communion. He's reminded them of what communion should be. And he finally ends with a response. He calls them to examine their hearts. Paul's response is examining our hearts. Read with me in verse 27 again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul is asking the Corinthians, or he's commanding the Corinthians to examine their hearts. He's going to offer some guidelines, and he's going to offer a warning. He tells them what they should examine their hearts to see if they are approaching the table in an unworthy manner. And I want to just pause for a second here because I think this this little line is read wrong so often. We hear, do not approach the table in an unworthy manner. And we ask the question, am I worthy to approach the table? And I remember um, in my teenage years, as I was, I think in some senses, a a relatively mature Christian, I knew who Jesus was and, and I believed in the gospel. I would get ready to approach the communion table and I think, okay, have I sinned? badly enough and recently enough that I shouldn't take the cup and take the bread. I, I ask the question like, eh, am I okay? Am I not okay? And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like, am I worthy to go to the table? Am I worthy to go to the table? And, and I want to assure you of something that is essentially true and, and fundamental to the message of the New Testament. The table 
is only for the unworthy. The table is only for the unworthy. If it were not, if it were only for those who were worthy, no one would ever be there. The question is not whether or not you or I are worthy to take the Lord's Supper. The question is, are we doing it in a worthy manner? And it really boils down to the basics of Christian belief. Do I believe the gospel? Have I put my trust in Jesus and do I hope in him and have those truths and those realities burrow deep down into my heart such that they begin to express themselves in the way I live my life? Do I really believe it? Has it gotten deep down inside my heart? Do I believe in the unity of the church? Do I seek unity in the church? Or am I even now bitter and divided? Do I confess my sin and repent of my sin and seek righteousness? The question is not how recently have you sinned. The question is how much do you hate your sin and desire to obey and to follow Jesus? The question is not did I recently get in a fight with another church member. It is how do I regard that fight? Do I desire for unity in the church. Because communion, specifically according to Paul, is designed for us to examine ourselves. Because as we examine ourselves, through that examination, the Lord protects, preserves, and purifies His church. It's a special time for us to really think through the state of our hearts. Paul goes on. He says, some people have not been doing it right. They have been eating judgment down on themselves. He says, that's why some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you have died. And then we get these cascading sets of judgment. Paul says, you approach the table and first you examine yourself. You do the work yourself. Then after that, if you don't examine yourself and you are guilty, the Lord might extend judgment towards you. You could be sick or you could be weak. And then after that, you could be condemned with the world. The point of all of it, is for the Lord to purify and to protect His church. Now, just for a moment, I want to be clear. If you are sick right now, if you are weak right now, if you are on the edge of death right now, I don't want you to hear, because of this specific sin, you are sick or weak or whatever in this specific way. That's not how sin is connected to sickness. Paul is saying sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Most importantly, he's calling us to examine our hearts. Think about how angry he is, how disappointed he is with the Corinthians. Why? Because the nature of the Lord's table or the nature of the way they took the Lord's table, it undermined the gospel. It made things worse and not better. He takes communion so seriously because in these moments, we reflect on the powerful nature of the gospel, what it is that Jesus has done for us. We set time aside in that moment to prepare our hearts, to examine our hearts, to dwell in the great truths that we read about in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we hope, we look forward and we hope that's what we should be doing as we prepare our hearts for communion. I, I want to invite you, I want to invite you as we are about to take communion in a little while here to take it as seriously as Paul does. It's a tool that the Lord uses for his church's good. It's a means of grace. It's a tool of continual transformation. 
It's a moment where we're reminded of the Lord. Take it seriously the way that Paul does. Take it seriously the way that Jesus does. I'm going to end with some prayer. Father, we thank you for the greatness of what it is that you provided for us in your word. We thank you that you have preserved your church and you've protected it. We thank you for the work that Jesus achieved at the cross. We thank you for the uh, magnificent beauty uh, of the church in, in that it is a, a body of believers that are gathered around you, that are united in you. I pray even now, as we are so easily divided by current issues, that you would protect us and you would preserve us, that you would give us humble hearts, that you would tear down arrogance that might be living inside us, that you would supernaturally and powerfully unify us, that we would look to you and lift up the name of your Son. I pray as we take communion now, in these next few moments, that we would see it as an opportunity to reflect on the gospel, to confess, to repent, and to continually turn towards back, turns back towards you. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. And that he is returning as we do this together. Now as the music plays, please collect your, Jesus gathered together with his disciples for a final Passover meal. He took the bread, he passed it out, he said to them, this is my body which is for you. Take and eat. Also with the cup, he said, uh, this is my blood in the new covenant. Elsewhere he says, this is my blood poured out for the sins of humankind. Take and drink. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.